please turn with me to Psalm 113. Tonight I have the great honor and privilege to kick off our summer series that we've entitled Psalms of the Passover Lamb. We are going to be looking at Psalm 113 to 118. And these were the psalms that God's people would sing as they celebrated the Passover, as they gathered together early in the year to sing of God's redemptive act, that, that, that infamous or that famous redemptive act in the Old Testament where God rescued His people. And they would sing these hymns. They would sing these psalms. The first two 113 and 114, they would usually sing at the beginning of the supper. And the next four, they would usually sing at the end. And we see uh, a testimony of this in Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14. After the Passover, God's word says this. As Jesus and his disciples were finishing the Passover, it says, And when they had sung a hymn. So as they closed out this great celebration of God's redemptive work, they sung a hymn. And we believe this is what they sung. They sung these hymns as they closed out this great celebration of God's redeeming work in their lives, the lives of their nation. So we're going to be looking at these six psalms together. Tonight we're going to look at uh, chapter 113, a psalm that they sang probably at the very beginning. Passover meal as they celebrate it. So let's look at God's word together. I'm going to read it, we'll pray, and I'll jump in. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Praise the Lord. Lord God Almighty, we come to your word tonight and we pray as we look at it that you would well up in our hearts a sense of praise for you are worthy. Would you open up this, your word tonight by your spirit. I am incapable of doing that with the words of my mouth, but you are capable, you are powerful to open hearts you're powerful to transmit truth and teach your people. And so would you do that tonight as we look at your word in Christ's name. Amen. So if you look at the very beginning and the very end of this psalm, it says, praise the Lord. At the very end it says, praise the Lord. It begins with praise the Lord and it ends with praise the Lord. In Hebrew, that is the word hallelujah. Two words that are kind of put together, hallelujah means praise, or hallel means praise, and yah, or yah, which means the Lord, is a shortened version of God's name. So when you put those two together, hallelujah, it means praise the Lord. 
These are the, the songs of Hillel, or the Egyptian Hillel, the word praise. They praise God for what he had done in the Exodus, in the Passover. And the beginning of these songs is a song of praise. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And different translators have added different punctuation. The NIV just has a period there at the very first verse. Praise the Lord, period. At the very end, the NIV says, praise the Lord, period. But not the translators for the ESV. They added an exclamation mark. Now we know that punctuation was added later. The original Hebrew language didn't have punctuation. And so translators added punctuation. And I think the translators are right here. That this is an exclamation this is not praise the Lord, period. This is not PTL that you text to somebody. This is a real sense of praising the Lord, that they're overwhelmed with who God is. And what's welling up inside of them is to praise Him, for He is worthy. For many of us, Easter and Christmas is a great time of year because we get to sing what? The Hallelujah Chorus. That great second, or the end of that second part of Handel's Messiah, where we gather together at the end of Easter Sunday or during the Christmas season, we sing together. And in four and a half minutes, that chorus, we sing hallelujah 40 times. 40 times. We sing hallelujah. God's people gather together. Praise the Lord. That's what this psalm is like. It's praising the Lord. It's a doxology of sorts. My question for you tonight as we enter into this text is when was the last time that you were overwhelmed by the character and the beauty and the graciousness of God that you stopped and just said, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Like you put your hands up in the air and you're overwhelmed by His glory or His graciousness or His mercy. And what was welling up inside of you was praise. When was the last time that happened to you? Christmas? Easter? I hope not. And hopefully as we look at God's passage tonight, this, this psalm that we will be struck by why we should praise Him. For He is worthy and we should pray that that would be a normal tradition normal practice in our lives as we gather as God's people to praise Him. I really have one question that I want to answer out of this passage, and is this, why should we praise the Lord? Why is the psalmist saying, Hallelujah, praise the Lord? Why? What is it about God that is so praiseworthy? Three answers to that that we'll look at. One, we praise the Lord because He is God. Two, we praise the Lord because He dwells in the highest of glory. And three, we praise the Lord because He dignifies the disgraced. So why do we praise the Lord? First, because He is God. The psalmist there in verses 1, 2, and 3 says, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. 
Three times he references the name of the Lord. What, what is this? The name of the Lord. Well, well it's something that's deeply rooted in God's Word. We first hear about it in Exodus chapter 3. When Moses is out there tending to his sheep and he hears Moses, Moses from a burning bush and he turns to see this burning bush speaking to him and he goes over to it. And what does he do? He talks to this burning bush and it is God. He says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And God speaks to this burning bush and says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to lead my people out from their oppression and their slavery. I've chosen you, Moses, to do that. And Moses looks to God. And he says this, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is His name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. What is His name? I am who I am, God says, is His name. The first person singular verb to be. I am. And usually, it's a verb that points to something. I am walking. I am preaching. I am your Father. But when it stands alone like God has communicated it, it points to His self-sufficiency. God's name is in reference to, this is a big word, His aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. His self-sufficiency, His self-existence, His complete and total independence, His autonomy. He is self-sufficient. He has sufficient resources within Himself for all that He is and He does. He needs nobody and is dependent on no one. This is the great theological marker between the creature and the Creator. The God Himself is self-sufficient. I love how our confession puts it. God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself and is alone in and unto Himself all self-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which He has made. God needs nothing. He's not dependent on anything. He is completely self-sufficient in who He is and how He communicates Himself. God is to be praised because He is God and there is no other. This is a sad thing about when we think about idolatry. As we read this morning in the New City Catechism, idolatry is the trusting and created things rather than the Creator for our hope and happiness, significance and security. Part of God's movement into our lives is to take those claws that we use of our hearts that grip onto things in life, that hold tight to things. Maybe our spouse or our kids, our reputation, our future, that our emotional, spiritual lives grip hold of. And God is at work loosening that grip of those things that you worship, that those things that you move into thinking that they're going to make your life more purposeful. They're going to make your life better. And you know what those are. God has revealed those to you. I know you struggle with those. So do I. But God is doing this in our lives, each of our lives, 
Because He is God and He tolerates no rivals. Though He has many rivals, He has no equal. And He is to be praised. There is one God. And we are to praise Him. Praise the Lord. Praise His name. There is one God and there is no other. But not only is He God, but He dwells in the highest of glory. Look at verse 4. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above all the heavens. He is like, who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high? The psalmist is pointing out that He is not only God, the one true almighty God, all-powerful God, self-sufficient God, but He resides in complete transcendence and glory. Verse 5, who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high? The word seated there means to dwell. To dwell on high, above all nations. His weighty presence is above the heavens, which is a word picture, meaning that He resides higher and outside of our existence. It's hard to comprehend this reality. Above the heavens and the stars and the constellations, all that we see and experience is too small to contain His glory and His presence. He is far above that. He dwells outside space and time. This concept of God's transcendence is so hard to grapple with because we ourselves reside in time and space. All we know is, is uh, compressed into this world that we live in that God has created and placed us into. The old adage is true, though. Experience is a great teacher. Now, experience never trumps God's special revelation, but we must remember God has revealed Himself in two ways. Special revelation, which we have here, which we're preaching from tonight, but general revelation as well, that God has created all things. This was the point of, of Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. The concept that God is transcendent, that He's other, that He's high, that He's glorious. We see that in His creation and we experience it as we realize how small we are in life. Two weeks ago, we went to Denver, Colorado on a trip with our, our daughter. And there we got to visit the Rocky Mountain National Park. If you've been there, it's a beautiful park, and I would encourage you, if you're ever up in that part of our country, to visit it. And there's a road called the, Mountain, the Rocky Mountain Trail Ridge Road. It's a road that goes from one side of the park to the other, and it goes all the way up to about 11,500 feet. And once you're up there, there's still snow there. There's no trees because trees don't grow past, I think, 11,000 feet. Maybe 10,000 feet. Maybe 9,000. Just kidding. <laughs> and so you're up there, and you look down upon the valleys between the different mountains. And you look out over the beauty of the mountains and how high they are and how vast they are, how enormous they are. And maybe you've had this experience and you can't help but think how small you are 
we were up on one of the, the mountains and we had these binoculars and we looked down in the valley and we saw these little things down there. Like little ants. I'm like, what, what is that? What is that down there? And we put on the binoculars and we looked down there and what did we see? We saw elk. Elk. You ever been next to an elk before? An animal that weighs close to 700 pounds? Right? And we're looking down over the valley and we see it and we can barely see it. So small. And nobody in here hopefully weighs 700 pounds. <laughs> I don't. But even that elk is so tiny that you can hardly see it for about 11,000 feet, maybe 9,000. <laughs> right? And God is above all things. Over all creation. Not only is above all things and high, He is glorious. He exists outside of our comprehension. He is powerful, eternal, immortal, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He is glorious creator. We see that in verse 4. For the Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the, the, the heavens. What is the, the glory of God? It's the weight of His presence. Another animal illustration. When I was first married, Ashley and I went up to uh, Delaware, where her family is from, Baltimore, Delaware area, and went to this kind of colonial village. And there they had ox. And for some reason, somebody took a picture of me looking at this ox, and it's this famous picture we have in our house, and you'll never see it. Uh, but I was a 27-year-old receding. I had some hair, but it was still receding. And I have my hand on this ox, this animal that, I don't know, weighs 2,000 pounds. And my face is like, what is this? I can't even comprehend. And the fear and the awe of that. Have you ever been around a massive animal? The weight of its glory is overwhelming. And to put that in perspective, God's people sacrifice Hundreds, thousands of ox to appease His glory, to appease His judgment. God's presence, God, the weight of His presence is unfathomable. It's hard to comprehend. He is high and glorious and He is God. But lastly, what we see is He dignifies the disgraced. Verse 7 through 9. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He, uh, ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making their joyous mother, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. This God that is holy, this God that is transcendent, this God that is God Himself is not aloof. He's not so far off that He doesn't know our experience. He dwells in incomprehensible glory. But what we see in verse 7 and 9, especially in verse uh, 6, is He comes down. He humbles Himself, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. When I was 9,000 feet looking at that ox, I had to have binoculars to see. God doesn't need that. God doesn't need binoculars to see you. 
He doesn't, see, he doesn't need it to see me. We are not so small that He can't see us. Why? Because He comes near. He humbles Himself. He looks down upon His people. And who are the people that He looks down upon? The poor, the needy, the ashamed, the disgraced. That's the images we get in verse 7 through 9. He raises the poor from the dust. This is a picture of somebody that's, that's so destitute, that's giving up. They're laying on the ground and they have nothing, absolutely nothing, completely poor, materially, relationally. And they're waving the right white flag. It's done. I've got nothing. And God sees them. He sees them, though we don't see them, though we struggle to see those that are poor emotionally and spiritually and even materially, God sees them. Secondly, the needy, somebody that is destitute, they're so needy, they're going through an ash heap, a dung hill. This is a dumpster diver who is going through a dumpster looking for food, looking for something to feed them because they have nothing. They're so needy, scrounging around a garbage heap to find food. This is the picture that the psalmist is painting. But lastly, and he sees them, he also sees the barren woman, a woman that doesn't have children, and I want to be sensitive to this because some of us in here don't have children. And that's hard. You've always wanted a child and maybe it's been difficult. In this day and age, there was an enormous social stigma attached to that women that weren't able to have children. It was disgraceful. We learn in Luke chapter 1 when Elizabeth finds out that she's pregnant. She praises God. Why? Because He's removed her reproach. He's removed her social disgrace. And God sees the disgraced. God sees those that walk around burdened by their shame, that hide from everybody because of past sins, present sins, actions that they're involved with. Fill in the blank. God sees them. He not only sees them, what does He do? He enters into their lives and makes them sit with princes, with the princes of His people. He dignifies them. Here are people that socially have no worth, have no dignity. And yet God... And all His glory and majesty enters into their presence. And what does He do? He dignifies them. He makes them sit with princes. He makes them royalty is the image we see. He gives them back their worth. Though the world sees them as worthless, He does not. And what does a prince but the heir of the king. A person 
that has dignity, that has power, that has influence. Why? Because he's the son of the king. This mighty, transcendent, glorious God cares about the poor, the needy, the barren, the ashamed. So much so that He dignifies them, lifts them up to the places of royalty, of influence, of prominence. And isn't that the Gospel? Isn't that what Jesus has done for us and to us? Who is it in this passage that you relate to? Maybe you feel poor tonight. Maybe your life is you're running out of stamina, of energy. You're isolated. And you're thinking to yourself, I can't go any further. And emotionally, you're laying on the ground and you're thinking, it's over. I can't do it. My sin is too much. Maybe you're thirsty and you're hungry for purpose, for dignity, and you're searching everywhere. Every garbage heap you can find. Work. Recreation. You're searching all throughout life to find something that, that nourishes you. And God enters in by His grace and through the person of Jesus Christ forgives you of your sins, welcomes you into His presence and dignifies you puts you in the seat of royalty next to Him. Maybe you're disgraced. Maybe you're overwhelmed by your sin tonight. And you're walking around, maybe not with a physical scarlet letter, but inside you feel it. It's, it's there. And you hide it based on maybe the brokenness in your marriage or the things you're doing on your phone or the internet, or in business, and you're ashamed by it, and you're trying to hide it, and yet God in Jesus Christ is coming near to you, offering you forgiveness, offering you dignity, offering you a place with Him in His kingdom. This God, who is high, Transcendent and holy has come near in the person of Jesus. And He's offered us a throne with Him to reign, rule and reign with Him over all that we see, over all that is His, over all that He has created that magnifies His name. He's offered us a seat at the table in all of our mess, all of our poverty, neediness, and disgrace. And how does he do that? Well, let's not forget the context of this psalm. We started with these are psalms of the Passover. The Passover. This great redemptive act in the Old Testament where God sees His people. He sees His people beaten. He sees the poor, the poverty of His people. He sees this shame that the... the yeah, the sadness of His people. And He enters in to rescue them. He enters in to redeem them. And how does He do it? He does it by the blood of the Lamb. He informs Moses. and says, tell the people that I'm coming. 
and I'm coming in wrath and judgment upon this pagan nation that has abused my people. And I'm coming, and if you'll take a one-year-old little lamb that has no blemish, and if you take it and you slaughter it and you sacrifice it and take its blood and you put it on the doorposts, and when I come in judgment, when I come to bring this tenth plague upon this pagan nation, as I come through this city, this nation, as there's blood on that doorpost, I will pass over it. I will pass over. Not only that, I will bring you out to myself. I will give you a relationship, a land, a presence. You will be mine. I will redeem you. This is the whole point of the Passover. And this is what God's people are singing about. How does any of this happen? How do we praise the Lord? How do we understand how He raises the poor from the dust or lifts the needy from the ash heap? It's all through the blood of the Lamb. That we are washed in the blood of Jesus. All our shame, all our poverty, all our neediness has been dealt with by Jesus. I've entitled this sermon before uh, Handel there was Hillel. We talked about the very beginning. These are the Egyptian Hillel Psalms. These Psalms of praise for what God has done in His people through the Passover. And also talked about how we love to sing praises to God. And when the last time you sang hallelujah was probably... Handel's Messiah during Easter or maybe during Christmas. And do you know at what point in that great piece of music that Handel's or the Hallelujah Chorus, Hallelujah Chorus shows up? It's not the beginning, nor is it at the end. It's at the second part, the second movement. And it's the very end of that second movement that Handel explodes into doxology, the Hallelujah chorus, chorus. And what is that second movement about? It's about the passion of Christ. The very beginning of that second part of the Messiah starts with music from John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. How do we end up praising the Lord? How do we have that moment where we're exploding in praise toward Him? It's because we realize that the Lamb has been slain. That Jesus Christ on the cross bled out to pay for your sins. To deal with your shame. To deal with your wrong. To deal with your bad. Why? So you could be in His presence and you could rule and reign with Him forever. How are we able to sing this? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. It's only through the blood of the Lamb. It's only through the cross. As you reflect upon the glories and the wonders of a transcendent, glorious God coming near, becoming small, 
for you and for me. And going to a cross and bleeding out for your sins and my sins. May we always sing, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, for He is worthy. He is worthy of our praise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you praise tonight. Lord God Almighty, we give you praise for you are worthy. You are high and glorious. You are the one true God. There is no other. And you are not distant. You are not aloof, but you are near. You see us. You've heard our pain, our neediness, our poverty, our shame. And you came near to us to rescue us and to redeem us through the blood of the Lamb, through Jesus Christ. And we give you praise for that tonight. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. May that, be always, may that always be our song as we reflect on the glories and the wonders of the gospel. We ask this in Christ's name.